Hello, Great Minds. It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we give a toast to Sigmund Freud. And I'm not singing. You don't have to sing. You don't have to sing. This episode of DGMH is brought to you by Podcorn, the easy, stress-free way to start monetizing your podcast. Anyone who has started a podcast from scratch dreams of rapid growth and generating some income, but making those dreams into realities can be challenging. But not with Podcorn. Personally, I had no idea who to reach out to, who would be interested in sponsoring my show, or where to even begin. Podcorn changed all of that. Podcorn is a place where podcasters can connect with great, relevant podcast sponsorship opportunities, and you get to work directly with every sponsor. Podcasters, big and small, can browse and choose opportunities right from the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly in a way that is easy for everyone. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is there to support you every step of the way. Podcorn gives podcasters creative freedom and full control of how and when we monetize. Just click on the link in my show notes to sign up with Podcorn and start making the most of your podcasting journey. So let's raise a glass to Podcorn. Cheers! So today we are actually toasting two great minds, Sigmund Freud and Dr. Sherry Valensic, as tomorrow is Sherry's birthday. As a gift, I figured I would cover whoever she wanted to on the show, and the chosen great mind, after some debate, uh, is Sigmund Freud. <laughs> so we are doing Sigmund Freud today. Uh, now we are going to do this in a sort of hybrid format of the standard DGMH episode and a twist of sight, as we dive into the mind, the man, the master of mummy issues, Sigmund Freud. But first, and Sherry, you've already made it clear you're not singing, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. All right, so how are you doing tonight, Sherry? I am just grand. It's almost the end of the week, almost the end of my 51st year on Earth, and a long weekend ahead, so all is well. So what are you drinking tonight? Well, so if you recall last week about doing a first pour party for Great Lakes Brewing Company, um, my favorite brewing company on earth. And they did their, uh, they have an annual first pour for their Christmas ale. And it was last Thursday. Uh, you couldn't make it and nobody else could make it. And I couldn't really drink by myself. That would be sad. Well, I guess maybe I could, but uh, anyways. All the time. Wait I, a I, Is it sad? Really? Damn. So anyway, so I decided to do my own first pour party tonight. So, you know, if, if I'm celebrating my birthday in Sigmund Freud, I'm drinking one of two beverages from Great lakes either this or commodore perry so i'm having my own little first pour party in my office with you and i will I smooth this out in a second but i'm going to get my christmas sale and do it with you i'll be right back oh that's awesome <laughs> don't know if you heard i crashed and burned and tripped over the gate the dog gate on the way out so that was no. so yeah look at you what are we calling this a uh this is the first first pour party first pour party of the christmas sale and i hate to say this it really is sad this is it my last Christmas sale. And luckily, oh, yeah. Christmas is all the, around the corner. So, And lucky for you, I have an entire of it. So um, we can still have a happy holiday season. Yeah, wait, you have, to you have to raise that, though, because I'll take a picture and I will post it on Twitter. Post and I'll, it I'll do it. Yeah, DJ Facebook page, too. You can do that. Yes, I will. Oh, that's, that's so damn good. Oh, my God. I haven't had one of those since Christmas. <laughs> like, I think since January. Christmas in a bottle. Oh, Christmas in a bottle. The only way to describe it. And I'm sure we'll drink more uh, on the show in the future. I was actually going to drink, to finish off October, I was going to drink my last of my favorite Oktoberfest Sierra Nevada. Now I guess I'm drinking both. Uh, so. <laughs> 
and at uh, at a very hard seven point five percent, it'll go down very smooth. An ale with spices and honey. I've described it since I worked at the bar as Christmas in a bottle. So, um, you know, I, I actually desperately tried. Listen, and perhaps well appropriate for what we're going to be discussing tonight. There are our balls on the front. So. There are balls all over this. Thing. Yes, balls on the label. So, well, you fun. know, I was actually going to try and come up with a sex themed drink, or maybe do sex on the beach. I didn't have the stuff for it, so I fell down this rabbit hole of trying to research sexually motivated drinks. And by the time I read the first five, Jackie's like, you can't say that stuff on there. <laughs> Is, isn't every isn't every sexually motivated at some point? I just, you don't, uh, they, these were, these made me uncomfortable. The, the first sight I clicked on, I was like, ew, oh, ew, ah, what the, they're calling it that? <laughs> so uh, anyway, but you know, a sex themed drink would have been good, and it definitely seemed appropriate, given that sex, uh, sexman Freud, uh, Sigmund Freud, basically that's operated a, on that's a, that's a Freudian that's a Freudian slip. Freudian slip. We're going to be full of those. Uh, but he basically seemed to operate on a strange balance of sexual frustration and cocaine his entire life. So uh, you know, I think it's fitting. But the balls on the bottle work enough for me. <laughs> So an early cheers to that. Cheers to that. All right, so let's do a brief uh, a bit on Sigmund Freud himself before we get into the psychology. Born in Austria, and I'm throwing air quotes up there because it wasn't really Austria. Uh, born in 1856, it was then part of the Edelweiss-loving Austrian Empire. But today it would be part of the Czech Republic. But for our story, uh, we will pretty much be focused on Vienna, Austria, where he spent most of his psychological journey. Yes? Sure. Yeah, cool. All right, and I, I so far in my brief research find his story to be fascinating and probably would be in the solid five to six range on the entertainment uh, scale in my book. Uh, but he lived through the Victorian age, the Industrial Revolution, and the rise of the German state as an existing country. Even then, the rise of Nazi Germany uh, towards the end of his life, which is of particular interest given his Jewish ancestry. But we're not really here to talk much about the history and said to a toast to the psychological mastermind that was Sigmund Freud. So Sherry, I kind of just wanted to start with your general opinions on Freud. Where does he stand in your psychological... Just, I don't know. Where do you think he <laughs> Do I have a psychological caste system? But oh, that's interesting. Um, I think I'll just start by saying Freud is definitely a controversial choice. And if you speak to anybody who actually studies psychology, not just teaches the class like I do, Freud is subject to great criticism. And he had been through his entire lifetime and career and still is to modern day. However, as we were discussing earlier today, there is no doubt that the general public's idea of what the discipline of psychology is largely comes from ideas and images that were first asserted by Freud. And I think that is pretty powerful in itself. So when I became a high school psychology teacher six years ago, and I started with a basic Google search trying to figure out what in the world I was going to teach because I taught fifth grade before that. I came across many different items about Sigmund Freud and just became generally fascinated with him. Now, having said that he's controversial, he is part of every intro to psychology curriculum and taught for lots of different reasons. He had a great influence on how we started looking at personality as being influential of somebody's behaviors. He had some very interesting um, assertions about how sex govern people's behaviors. But regardless of whether you are a Freudophile like I am, or you're highly critical of him, you can't doubt that he is the public image of psychology for most people. See, I think he's like the household psychological name. I mean, maybe Pavlov uh, with his dogs and bells, but they even get that wrong. But Freud 
is someone I knew before I discussed psychology ever. And honestly, from a historical perspective, if you, when you talk about the psychological, like the growth of psychology and history textbooks, which are in every US and world history textbook, Freud's the name that comes up. You're not talking about the, you know, Skinner or, boy, I can't think of any other psychologists off the top of my head. Well, and, and there are reasons, certainly people who are much more good in empirical research. But again, when you are looking at, I think, the impact just on knowledge and awareness of things that have to do with the discipline of psychology, I don't think you can argue that Freud did not play a part in that. I, I, I completely agree. And I will say one thing. As a teacher, and I, I, you might be able to back this up, I study more as a teacher uh, in the field that I study than I ever did as a college student. I mean, I am constantly learning and studying. So. Yes, we were just talking about when I tell my students, you just, you fall down the rabbit hole of research. And if you really enjoy learning, you don't come up for breath for hours and hours and hours. And I think that is actually the hardest part about being a teacher because we can't, I think most, most good teachers just can't stop. You just want to keep going and learning more and more and more. Jeez, as we talk about Freud, as we move into Freud's theories, I feel like we could just bust out Habsburg after Habsburg after Habsburg uh, and talk about incest and mummy issues, but maybe we should go to that. So what are some of Freud's like key theories? Uh, and then we can maybe talk about how relevant or irrelevant they are today. No, and I want to start by saying, kind of dovetailing on what you just said. So one of the things I love best about being a high school psychology teacher is when I look at what inspires students to learn more about my discipline. And there are lots of researchers that I cover in the introduction to my course. But as soon as I bring up Freud and start talking about not only his theories and his more academic-based work, but his personal life, most of the students are hooked. And that is what inspires them to really start to love the discipline of psychology. And that's another thing that I think Freud gets a lot of credit for. But when we look at an intro to psychology class, usually what people remember about Freud is his personality theory about the id, the ego, and the superego. But what his greatest contribution, I think, to psychology was this idea that you had a deep, dark layer of your personality that was called your unconscious. And according to Freud, that layer was something that you rarely showed to the public, but it drove all of your mental processes and behaviors. So when we talk about other classic Freudian ideas, like um, defense mechanisms, or if we talk about uh, sexual repression, those are all related to this idea of the unconscious. And it was that idea that attracted a lot of other early psychologists to investigate a little bit more on his work and also repelled early psychologists from his work as well. Yes, because you said he was contentious. He wasn't always well-liked. It seemed like there was always somebody breaking away from Freud because Freud went too far. But this deep layer of your subconscious, the unconscious as you called it, is that rooted in his, one of his earliest works? It's the, oh, what's it called? The dreams one. What's, the, what's that the, the interpretation of dreams. So, it, and first of all, subconscious and unconscious, two completely different, completely different things. ideas. But Freud, anything that has to do with the unconscious is attributed to Freud. But when we talk about, what did you just say? The interpretation. Oh, interpretation of dreams. Um, so that book was really one of Freud's magnum opuses. And he started investigating largely his own dreams. But one of the quotes that is always attributed to him is that he believed that your dreams were the royal road to your unconscious, that your unconscious was never something that people were willing to talk about or were even able to talk about. But when we looked at the elements of their dreams, because dreaming largely takes place during REM sleep, which is when you are unconscious, but your brain produces the same type of wave energy as when you are awake. Um, and that's when most of your dreaming takes place. So Freud was fascinated 
fascinated with that idea that if you were able to recall visions that you dreamt about, that had to say something symbolic about your unconscious. And two of his other ideas were that you had two different um, components of your dreams. You had the manifest content, which were the images that you dreamed about. But more importantly, there was the latent content, and that was the symbolic meaning of those images. And that's what he sought to understand more about himself and that he wrote about in his book, The Interpretation of Dreams. And that is one of the things that caught other psychologists' like attention at first, right? And that kind of grew into like his theories on psychoanalysis. Well, because his his first dreams that he interpreted were his own when he started realizing that he had great affections, if not sexual desires for his mother, that he had a lot of anger issues with his father. And the idea for the book came about, according to what I read, after his father had passed away. And he kept having visions of his father through his dreams and then started investigating what those uh, meant. Now, the idea of psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis is the idea that you're using things like dreams, you're using slips of the tongue, like what happened to us at the beginning of this episode, as a way to get some clues as to what was in that individual's unconscious that drove their behaviors, even things that they perhaps didn't even realize about themselves or were willing to admit. And we should probably move to this whole thing that you brought up there, which is one of the terms that are most well-known or associated uh, with Freud is the Oedipus Complex. The Oedipus Complex. Um, so, of course, this is based on the, uh, the name comes from the Greek myth of Oedipus, um, who accidentally killed his father and married his mother. But that, was, that came from Freud's idea that he believed that there was a, a deep affection, if not a sexual attraction, for children to their parent of the opposite sex. Now, he wasn't attributed to the Electra complex. That was his contemporary Carl Jung's idea. But Freud focused on a young boy or young man's attraction to his mother because that's what he thought he had. Hmm. That's what the Oedipus complex is. Yes, and it's it's starting to seem like a lot of his ideas, I'm sure many of his dreams, were motivated, at least in terms of study, by, by sex, or at least they were kind of sexual in nature. So what role does what role does that play? I, mean, I don't want to say sex like the act, but they had, well, libido was what he called it, right? I mean, it was, that was the driving force in most of his theories. Well, and, you know, if you think about it, Freud was really uh, a maverick his day. He came to notoriety at the turn of the 1800s and 1900s during the Victorian era, where things were very current proper and you didn't talk about sex. And so all of a sudden, this, this strange man from Austria is publishing his ideas of not only adult sexual behavior, but children's sexual behavior. He believed that children were born with sexual urges, that they were innate. Um, and that was the first part, that, first part of their personality that developed. And so he was really met, as I told my students, with shock and awe among the public, and especially influential leaders like Queen Victoria, uh, could not believe what he was willing to talk out loud about. And it's interesting if you listen, um, there are very few recordings of Freud's voice that are available, um, but in one uh, recording that happened shortly before he passed away, um, he talked about how disappointed he was that nobody really accepted um, his theories while he was alive. And that was a, a great source of, I think, torment for him. And I, that continues to go on today. I think that there are people who think Freud is very interesting and think that some of his ideas were, by and large, his theories are aren't accepted in the psychological circles now, but yet Freud lives on. And I think that if 
we had to look. I, I think that some pop culture sources like Wikipedia always rate Freud as the number one cited psychologist of all time. And he really wasn't a psychologist. He was a medical doctor. A, a neurologist, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just think it's interesting that out of all of these people who are part of the history of psychology, that it is Freud's ideas that still continue to live on. And the interpretation of dreams is still published to this day. It's been published since, uh, it was originally published in 1899, but he wanted it to have a 1900 uh, copyright on it mm -hmm. to reflect the new era, mm -hmm. uh, the new century. So, uh, but it is still available at Barnes and Noble or your today. Yeah, you know, he talked about a lot of things that people aren't always willing to talk about. Well, but and that's just it. I think he was he was willing to say that. And again, I think that's why people were outraged by him. But that's also what piqued their attention. I, I mean, I teach my students all the time. The three things they need to remember about Freud is the fact that he believed in this unconscious layer of the personality. That he believed sex and memories from your childhood drove a lot of your adult behaviors. And those are the things that my students typically will always remember long past their time in my classroom. So one thing, one situation though, that did kind of freak me out was that one of the people he psychoanalyzed uh, and had regular therapeutic sessions with was his daughter, Anna and the conversations they would talk about. Did you want to comment on that or? No, I mean, we were just, we were talking earlier. Freud was very close to his inner circle. He did, uh, with his his wife, his children. Um, now there's some rumor about some impropriety with some sister-in-laws and things like that. Uh, but again, I think Freud was willing to talk about these. Um, his daughter, Anna, was his youngest child and she was very interested in his academic ideas. And so they, they started talking about psychology, talking about how Freud viewed the human in mind and I think that naturally led into these deeper conversations that involved things like sex and you know I a little curious to think that she would have those conversations with her father. But Anna Freud, in her own rights, also became a psychoanalytic psychologist. And so I think it was just something that she, first of all, passionately believed in, like her father did, but was also really interested in exploring some more. And when you have limited subjects who are willing to do it, you start with yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I never got the vibe that it was creepy. And I, I'm, I'm looking something up real quick because one thing that really interested me was that we discussed that a lot of people didn't appreciate necessarily his views, but some people did. Uh, a relative of Napoleon Bonaparte, even Princess Bonaparte, as she's known, uh, helped Freud escape. Uh, from uh, Germany when the Nazis rose to power. And I, I read somewhere that Freud didn't really want to escape. He didn't want to, I'm sorry, he didn't want to leave, uh, you know, during the rise of Dutch Germany as they annexed Austria, which can be seen beautifully and playing out in The Sound of Music, which we all should watch anyway. But the reality is he didn't want to go and it seemed like his daughters were pushing and pressuring him more and people that respected him helped him get out in the end. Um, but, the, you know, that's just part of the history. But, I, I, you know, it's interesting that big names did respect him, uh, if not the people at the very tip top. You know, it's starting to sound like he had almost like people who completely disagree with him, but then he had almost like a cult following. Are people still cult followers of Freud today? I think that there are, there are psychologists to still actively practice psychoanalysis. And the majority of psychologists who are out there offering therapy, which is something that Freud particularly was known for, tend to be eclectic. They tend to pull from resources and strategies that have been researched and pioneered by many, many people. But there are still people who are strictly psychoanalysts and that is in Freud's tradition. And I think that is something that I particularly admire about Freud is he was always very committed and passionate to his theories and his ideas. And I think the people who respect that about him and also subscribe to them are as passionate as he was about that. If you're a psych 
psychoanalytic psychologist, then that is what you are practicing. You are looking at people's dreams. You are looking at having them free associate about their activities for the day. Uh, and then you're studying their responses to try to bring them to a greater understanding about uh, how they think and how they behave. And so that, that's something I personally admire about him. So is Freud then essential to the growth of psychology as a discipline, if not for more than just heightening its popularity? Well, I think it's always great. I, I have a friend who used to be mayor of my city who said that it's always great to have a devil's advocate on your board. Mm -hmm. Because even though they create tumult um, and they dissent from majority, it's always good to have that a different viewpoint. And I think that that is something that Freud will always offer psychology as long as he continues to be part of the study of its history, is he was a vastly alternative viewpoint from how psychology um, kind of evolved from that time in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But uh, like I said, you walk into any five below dollar store and you look for uh, different tachis that have to do with psychology and inevitably there will be some kind of unicorn or alien sitting on a chair with a, a notebook and a pen in their hand uh, looking to write down somebody's thoughts. And that goes straight back to Sigmund Freud. And I don't see any of the other psychologists, Pavlov, Skinner, Bandura, any of the other greats, they don't have that merch on their side. And I, I think that Freud does. And in the reality, they don't really show up in the history books. But I've always been amazed how many times Sigmund Freud will show up, even in my American history textbooks uh, at the college level or anything like that. Again, I, I think the value of Freud is understanding that he was willing to break from what was tradition and put out these, these ideas that cause people to think, cause people to be outraged. And to this day, does he have a lot of credibility in psychological research? No, he doesn't. But if he can inspire other people to understand a little bit more about their mind and how they behave, isn't that a good thing? And that's what I see for my students is they become very involved in the field of psychology after they hear a little bit of Sigmund Freud's story. And it leads them to then better learning, more research, and a greater understanding of themselves. Absolutely. And I, I think you answered my, my final real question was, what is Freud's place in the modern psychology classroom? He is a Napoleon. I think he's a, ca he's a catalyst. Yes. He's, he, a, he's, somebody, he's, he's a big name that excites people about the field because it's a name they know. And then they learn about him and they're like, what? For me, that for my class, that's typically Christopher Columbus. They, they know Christopher Columbus and then they realize, holy shit. He sucked. Uh, you know. Well, and in my and in my class, their big aha is when they realize that one of the reasons, perhaps, why Sigmund Freud had all of these way out different ideas is because he was high on cocaine for most of his life, and he loved being on cocaine, and he used it a great deal, and that in itself is what uh, piques my kids' interest. That uh, wow, how can this, this person who was a drug addict for most of their life uh, become so famous and uh, and in certain circles well regarded? And I and I, I think the appreciation for Freud from a history viewpoint also is to what you alluded to his his Jewish ancestry. Now he was not a practicing Jew; he was um, an atheist. But the fact that he was aware that he would have and should have been killed in the Holocaust. And the fact that he did have to leave his home, um, he and his family escaped to London with uh, Princess Bonaparte's um, financial assistance. That's where he lived the last, I think, just 
a little bit more than a year of his life. And I, I think you have to appreciate how difficult that was uh, for somebody who, who lived their entire life and um, taught in the area, influenced students in that area, raised a family in that area, um, and to really have to escape for their life. And I think it's uh, it's interesting to consider what may have happened to Freud um, had he not had that assistance to get out. Um, surely he and his family would have perished in the Holocaust. Absolutely. And I think his children definitely knew that. And I think one thing about Freud, I, I love this quote. I use it in my class all the time uh, when we teach like witch hunts and everything like that in hysteria. And he said something like, look how, f in response to Nazi Germany, as they would literally burn Freud's books. Uh, this is kind of like the tell-all quote. I don't always like to go there, but it's such a good one because it shows how smart, intelligent, witty, and sarcastic he was. He, in response to Nazis burning his books, he said something along the lines of, look how far we've come. In the Middle Ages, they would have burned me. Today, they just burned my books. And I'm like, yes. Oh, yes, because yeah. his books her, his books were more of a threat than the person was. Absolutely. That's the, the, the yes, that is, that's a historical concept 100% for the moment the printing press happens. It, the, the, the word is more dangerous, the pen is more dangerous than the sword, the man wielding it or anything. So, um, well, that's just about it. Did you have any great fun facts, one fun fact of Freud that you wanted to share? One fun fact about Freud, yes. So, uh, Freud started to smoke as a young man in uh, his early 20s and then ended up switching to cigars. And usually if you see an image of Freud, he has his iconic stogie in his hand. I had the opportunity to go study at his home in London a few years ago, and they have collections of his cigars that were left behind after he passed away. But he actually started smoking cigars as a way to moderate his smoking um, because he was smoking way too many cigarettes and he could smoke less cigars and he thought that that was a way uh, to be able to, to taper his addiction. Now, the laugh was kind of on him because he did end up dying of uh, cancer to his jaw area. Yeah. And okay. um, yeah, yeah. what? It was throat cancer, right? That spread to his jaw, yeah. It did. And he ended up, most people don't know that he actually ended up dying by what we consider physician assisted suicide. Uh, he yeah. had his uh, physician friends supply him with overdoses of uh, morphine, and yes. he ended up pushing that way. And that's kind of, uh, I think, a very interesting end to a very interesting life. It so is like a psychological conundrum to end Freud's life. Did you also tell me that he got mugged? Oh yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. So um, the only time Freud came to the United States was at the invitation of G. Stanley Hall, who at the time was president of Clark University, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, and this was in the early 1900s when psychology had just been around as a discipline for about 30 or 40 years. And we wanted to have a gathering of these people who started calling themselves psychologists around the world. So G. Stanley Hall wrote Sigmund Freud a letter. Freud agreed to come over and sailed over to the United States. And the story that I heard goes that he ended up in Grand Central Station in New York City to be able to catch the train to go to Worcester, Massachusetts. And while he was there, he was mugged and he was uh, lost all of his money. And when he got to Worcester, Massachusetts, he had to borrow some cash from G. Stanley Hall. Um, G. Stanley Hall was the uh, in a Clark University at the time, and he was the founder of the American Psychological Association. So oh, that's, yeah, a, that that's a pretty good story. Uh, but uh, Freud did deliver some lectures there, and there's a lot of notoriety with the university uh, at the fact that Freud was there. But um, Freud comes to the United States, and what's the first thing that happens? He gets mugged. God bless uh, America. That's great. I love it. That is so fun. Um, okay, well, if those aren't fun facts, I don't know what is. But as we wrap up the show, you know, I'd like to be able to have Sigmund Freud pop up now and then as a great, uh, whenever we have a great mind that's more centered on the mind. Uh, so I'm glad that we've covered Freud and that we don't have to compare him to anybody yet. But as another gift to you, I thought I would let you do 
something that is so hard for me to do that nobody else ever has to do, which is a little different here. Let you rate him on the scale of greatness. So you award six points for each concept, leadership in his respective field, accomplishments, and entertainment. So what do you think? And it's hard. So I'm going to be 52 years old at the end of the week, so you got to break this down for me because I can't multitask. So what's the first criteria? Leadership in his field. You have six points to award. Leadership in his field. I'm going to give Freud a solid three just because he was never widely accepted by other preeminent people at the time. So I'm going to give him a solid three. He had different ideas. He was able to create a circle around himself of people who admired him, um, people who still identified with him, although they broke off and kind of went into different directions and created more of what is known in psychology as the psychodynamic tradition. All right. I like that. Three for leadership. Because, you know, pioneers aren't always good leaders in the long run. And then accomplishments. Did he accomplish what he set out to do? Did he accomplish greatness? Well, I don't think Freud accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. Freud wanted to be well-revered among his peers, and I don't think he ever reached that point. So I think I can't give him full credit for that. However, I think that, again, when you when you look at now we're 140, 150 years later, um, what the world understands or at least recognizes about psychology, there is a piece of Sigmund Freud in there. So I think that, that you have to give him some credit for that. So with accomplishment, I am going to give him, I think, a four. I, I don't disagree. That's what I'm thinking, because it's, even if they weren't psychological accomplishments in terms of a history podcast with a twist of psych, uh, they were some major historical accomplishments. And finally, entertainment. Ooh. Okay, well, I'm giving, I'm giving Freud a solid six, because yeah, I'm, a hard, I'm a hard sell, and when I started learning how to be a psychology teacher, it was Freud who got me really interested in this discipline to the point where it has become the love of my professional life now. And I also see him inspiring new generations of psychology students to do that with kids who are 15, 16, 17 years old. So I'm giving Freud a solid six because he's got really good aspects to his story. I think he was a really interesting um, individual. I think that he was a family man. I think that he was an actor academic, um, and I think that he had these quirky parts of his personality and his behaviors that make him very memorable. So I'm giving him a six. Well, that does it. You know, three for, three for leadership, four for accomplishments, and six for entertainment. That puts him in the 13-point out of 18-point range, giving him just about five crowns, putting him in the upper echelon of uh, our great minds. And I think we're going to exempt him from the piece of shit curve for now, maybe save that episode for a rainy day. Wait, so uh, that, I, that, was my, that was my birthday gift? Your birthday gift. You got to rate him and not me, yes. <laughs> your, your generosity overwhelms me. Well, I'm not saying that's your birthday gift, but in terms of DGMH, yes, that's all the show can afford. Cheers. Uh, <laughs> please support the Patreon. Yes, please support the Patreon page. On that note, if you crave even more DGMH, just visit my Facebook page at Drinks with Great Minds in History uh, or my Instagram at DGMH underscore History Podcast for all kinds of free content or, you know, help the show out. Visit the Patreon page where you can support the show and get access to even more great content and bonus episodes, including now uncut versions of all the shit we say that we probably shouldn't. Uh, but you gotta pay for that. Uh, so be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and please, please, please leave us a great, hopefully, five-star review wherever you listen. Um, okay, so, you know, we have to end the show right uh, with a shot. So, Sherry, what are you doing a shot? Oh, Jesus. Why oh, I don't have a shot. I would have to run and get a shot. I gotta go run and get one. Are you gonna run and get a shot? I said no. like, As that happens professionally as well. Yes. So, what are you doing a shot of tonight? 
Well, since it's my party, I start crying over COVID. I'll never stop. So I'm going to do my new favorite beverage, screwball whiskey, my peanut butter whiskey, which has a sheep on the front of it, which could be an interesting connection to Freud. Oh, you criticized me for a comment about beavers, and you bring in sheep. How dare you? Plus, screwball is kind of like one of those psychological things that you would say doesn't belong in a psychological conversation. Is exactly, that- yes. So there's all sorts of connections that can be made here. Oh, I didn't realize this. It says on the label, to the misfits, black sheep, and screwballs. If that isn't Sigmund Freud, I don't know what is. That's lovely. No, I sentence. wanted to do some kind of sex-related shot. I really did. And then I thought there were shots like liquid cocaine, which is a very intensive shot. But I don't keep Jägermeister in my house because it's dangerous. Oh, I, don't, yes. I don't have enough of those things in my house, uh, you know, to really do those shots. So I looked at what I had, and then I saw this bottle of Bloom Jasmine and Rose Gin. It's pink. Instantly, my interest was piqued. And then I found myself psychoanalyzing Bloom. And then I thought, what would Freud think about the name of this bottle of gin? Bloom, Blossom, Coming of Age. And I was like, ew, why am I thinking about these things? And then I was like, wonder what Freud would think of a rose. And I'm like, oh, I already know what Freud would think of a rose. Like, no shit. So I was like, you know what? Why not? Bloom gin. It's delicious. It's pink. And it's a damn good, uh, damn good gin. Uh, why is it pink? Does it have rose petals in it? Yes, it is distilled with rose petals, much like Hendrix, and it is about as smooth, but it's got this pink twist. It's fun. Uh, Gin with certified color, so it's made pink. But it does say a delicate pink create gin created with naturally extracted botanicals selected for their fragrant, fragrant, Jesus, fragrant sweetness and floral notes. 80 proof. Well, and as I'm reading through the screwball bottle, I said there is print on the inside of the label, which is very difficult to do after a Great Lakes Brewing Company Christmas Ale, but it says here uh, that this is to the one who had courage to stand alone, and that was Freud. I love when the shit we drink relates more so than we ever thought it would to the people we're covering. It happened to me with Washington and Pumpkins. So, <laughs> happy October. Uh, that's it. Let's raise a glass and toast to uh, our man of the hour, our man of honor here. Uh, whatever, I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Uh, oh, it got, I hadn't dropped an F-bomb yet, so I'm glad that got in there. Uh, Sigmund Freud, a toast to you. And of course, our own resident great mind, and Luke will love this one, psychology all-star, Dr. <laughs> Sherry Valensic. We wish you nothing but the happiest of happy birthdays. Thank you for helping us cover Sigmund Freud in such a delightful and fun way. So here's to this, especially many more birthday specials. Thank you. Cheers. I love it. Say it because I love making the glass sound in the show. Ha za. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Jim. Cheers.